Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. That's the second time it's gone off. And I said, I want to win the league, but I want to win it better. You can understand that, can't you? Yes. Good lad. So he's almost like having a second captain in the team. Second captain, first captain, whatever. It's the Irish Times Second Captain's Podcast. We're just 24 hours away from the hyper and Caledonian battle to the death. It's Billy Connolly versus Brendan O'Carroll. The Proclaimers versus the Dubliners. Jim Telfer versus Jim Staples. Yes, it's Scotland versus Ireland. And there can be only one winner, unless it's a draw. Yes, Murph, I used pretty much the same introduction on the football podcast earlier. That's fine. But we're going to overlook that little fact no. for the, the, Listen, the week that's it. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter, Owen. Uh. The fact of the matter is, you've entertained the nation once again. That's the important thing. You enjoy. You always enjoy Jim Staples mentions uh, and and said. Jim Telford <laughs> yeah. and the Dubliners. I mean, you mentioned you've covered nearly all of my cultural bases. Owen and Murph here in Dublin. Ken's in Glasgow. Hi, Ken. Hey, how are you doing? Not too, but you're you're taking the pulse of the Scottish nation over there. Yeah, uh, <laughs> the pulse is throbbing uh, there. It's it's uh, it's uncontrollable. Well, I'll tell you this, Owen. I, I did notice one thing. Uh, that I'm staying in this. Uh, what I suppose is a kind of an old tenement house of the type that uh, there are quite a few of in Glasgow. I mean, it's a very nice, it's a very nice flat on Air- Airbnb, of course. Um, but uh, <laughs> looking around at these old tenement windows, you know what I see? The saddest thing. Go on. Like a, it's like each window has well, not each window, but quite a lot of the window. It reminds me of a little a tear forming in a, in a sad little eye, in the form of a yes. A yes, uh, little postcard in each, you know, the, the, the blue uh, background yeah. and the white yes on the blue background. These people want to be free, Owen. They still want to be free, but they're not free. They're not free. Uh, Scotland voted no. Glasgow voted yes, but Scotland, the rest of it voted no. And uh, I thought it was interesting that uh, a lot of the windows still haven't taken down that, um, wow. that point. They're pointing little yes signs. Well, it might you know? be, yeah, it might be the people yearn for freedom. <laughs> uh, I'm not sure how Gordon Strachan felt on that particular debate, Ken, but he's, uh, he's preparing well for this game tomorrow night. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think Gordon Strachan and his staff were having a bit of a laugh at the uh, laugh earlier on at the, um, the story of uh, the Roy Keane's latest um, adventures uh, or at least as they had been reported by the media uh, at that point which suggested you know a, a fracas involving a book and so on and uh, they seem to be knocking some fun out of that in the Scottish team hotel earlier on but he's done his 
uh, press conference. And um, a lot of it actually taken up with this, uh, with questions about the uh, composition of the crowd um, in that, um, you know, it's suspected that there, there might be more than a few Irish supporters in there amongst the Scottish supporters. And even some of the Scottish supporters might turn out to be Irish supporters, really. Um, you know, I mean, I saw George, you know, George Galloway, the, of course, yeah. Um, big bro- uh, you know. Former Big Brother contestant George Galloway. What was he? Was he known before that? I no, think. I think it was mostly Big Brother. In Flowntree, things to say about this uh, the other day, where he was saying, in the past, Irish, you know, Scots of Irish extraction would never have supported Scotland ahead uh, of the Republic of Ireland again. I mean, he says he's supporting Ireland. Um, you know, one hundred percent. He hasn't forgotten his roots. Um, but uh, there was speculation that you know there might be a few uh, a few kind of Irish supporters in the Scottish section. Striking, you'll know right well you're in Scotland tomorrow night. Uh, he says ninety five percent Scottish fans. Uh, is, is he's pretty he's pretty confident that's what it's going to look like. Uh, but he also said that the you know while the Irish um, preparations have been thrown into chaos by the explosive incident at the um, hotel yesterday, at least according to some of the Scottish papers today, Strachan has said that he also is, uh, has had some difficulties in, with his build-up. Oh, it hasn't all run smooth because he played, he played Scrabble last night against Mark McGee for two hours and lost. A demoralizing blow <laughs> and an excellent press conference joke. That's the, <laughs> that's the way. And number two should know, you've got to know your place there. Yeah. If, you're, if Roy Keane is playing Scrabble with Martin O'Neill, he's losing that match. You've got to keep yeah. the boss man happy. The that's, you know, Jan, Jan McGee has a lean and hungry look. He thinks too much. Such men are dangerous. <laughs> we're talking rugby with Shane Horgan on this podcast, Ireland versus Georgia this weekend. More accurately, we're plunging Shane back into the darkest days of his rugby career, the 2007 World Cup. Mm. I watched that game, I don't know if you remember, Murph, but I watched that game in a, a lovely pub in a lovely tomb. Probably my favourite town in Ireland. Did you? Yeah, after watching uh, the great Kieran Murphy, Milltown footballer, top scorer in Milltown history, uh, playing a wow. senior championship match in... Um, in Tume Stadium. Yeah. There could have been the Namibia game, but for the purpose of this story, that was the Georgia okay, game. Okay, fair enough. Yeah. Uh, no, actually, watching no, it distractedly, you know, you're, after a game, you're in that environment after a game, you've got a lot of uh, old Milltown heads coming up to you and asking how you managed to miss that free. Yeah, you I missed remember. That. Yeah. I'm, I'm, this, that, that sounds like a stereotype, yeah. but actually, th- this is what was happening. Uh, I remember, that was one of the most <laughs> annoying uh, uh, evenings after a game that I've ever had. <laughs> well played, Kieran. Uh, how'd you miss that free? Yeah. But uh, really loaded, you know. Yeah. Not- my, uh, my dad... Actually, I was talking to my dad in the pub, I remember. I, basically, for the purposes of the list, I'm sure you all remember this incident, but I did miss a 14-yard <laughs> free uh, playing for Milton against Adidown in the championship quarterfinal in 2007. And uh, I didn't actually score in the game, which I think that was it was nearly the first time I'd played a championship game where I hadn't scored. Oh, so I was, yeah. ta- I was talking to my dad afterwards, and my dad called over one of the uh, former great from Milton to come over and ask, Alan, how are you doing? Uh, listen, did you ever play a championship game where you didn't score and missed a 14 yard free? Like, Dad, why are you why are you doing this? And actually, my next door neighbour came over to me later that evening and said, "Jeez, um, the team played very well, all right today, but what's going on? You know, God, you were terrible out there today." <laughs> I was like, I really, I don't need to hear this. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I 
you know, we're celebrating a victory here. It's all about the team. Trying to watch in the background Ireland roll over some minnows in the World Cup and then slowly realising this, this, hang on a second, could we lose? Uh, We're going to talk to Shane about that a little bit later on. And one of the top writers in America, Don Vanatta, ESPN's Don Vanatta. He's an amazing investigative reporter, among other uh, strings to his bow. He wrote brilliant stuff on the Ray Rice domestic abuse story earlier on this year. Uh, Just this incredible ability to, I suppose this is journalism, but to gather a lot of detail, a lot of detail in that case, and work a lot of sources. Murphy presented in a really digestible way. It was, it was, I was quite struck because that's, that's, that Ray Rice story is the kind of thing that everyone, a lot of people throw around misinformed or ill-informed bits and bobs about. And then you read this piece, it's just uh, almost indisputable, even though some of the parties did dispute some of what he wrote. He then had to stand over it, did a lot of interviews after it, says, listen, my, stor- my sources stand up. Anyway, that's not what we're talking to him. We're chatting to him today about the most egocentric owner in world sport. Yeah. Jerry uh, Jones. Jerry Jones of, of the Dallas Cowboys. And, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the guy is, uh, he's extraordinary. I mean, he's about the most hated figure, I would say, in U.S. sport. I mean, there was a poll done about 10 years ago where he, he placed pretty highly on that particular. <laughs> uh, and he's not even a sportsman. Uh, but the, the, the weird thing about him, him is he bought the team in, uh, I think, February of 1989 and within a couple of months had sacked the general manager and had put himself in charge as general manager. So the general manager is basically, you know, your director of football. Mm. Um, so, yeah, you can kind of imagine, you know, the Glazers coming in, buying Manchester United, and then saying, right, we're also going to, like, decide who's getting Joe, Joe Glazer is, is the yeah, man here now. Yeah. Exactly, yeah. And, um, I mean, it's it's pretty much unprecedented. There's only one other owner who's also a general manager in the, uh, in the NFL at the moment. Uh, so he has a hand in... You know every single part of the decision making in the uh, in the organization, and there's not a whole lot of proof to suggest that he knows what the hell he's at. But he, in fairness, the Dallas Cowboys are an unbelievably profitable, hugely successful franchise from the point of view of making money. But they're the very definition of mediocrity. The last three seasons in a row, they've won eight games, lost eight games, and not qualified for the playoffs. <laughs> so. All this chat of America's team and all the rest of that. At some stages, they're going to have to win something yeah. to sort of back up all of this all of this talk. And this article is one of these long-form uh, pieces. Don Vanada spends a lot of time with Jerry Jones and really gets... Uh, Over the course of three months. I think quite yeah. charmed by him in a lot of ways. It's uh, These egocentric people can often be quite interesting. They spend yeah. a lot of time in their world. So that's what he did. We'll get to that a little bit later on. But we're going to start with the rugby. Shane Horgan joins us now. Shane, we want to talk to you about the 2007 World Cup, if that's okay. Yeah, dragging up bad memories again. Thanks very much, Owen. <laughs> there is a context this time, and we, we like to shoehorn in wherever we can, but uh, the game against Georgia back in 2007, uh, it was a funny one in that Ireland had played pretty poorly against Namibia, but that might have been put down to a number of different reasons, and the idea was you get, you get the show back on the road against Georgia and then take on France and Argentina. What actually happened in that game against Georgia? Uh, well, it was my first game back after injury. I missed the opening game to Namibia, and... I remember we had spoken about it on the build-up to the World Cup when, when the um, fixtures indeed came out. And we thought, well, this is perfect. You know, we've got Namibia and then we've got Georgia. And that's really set us up perfectly for, for the challenges ahead with France and Argentina. We couldn't have, couldn't have worked out better. But as uh, you mentioned there, things didn't go particularly well against Namibia. And then the wheels maybe came off entirely against Georgia. It was, uh, it was quite incredible. Um, I think... It really demonstrated that, you know, if one team is fully committed um, and really tries to, you know, put pressure on the side, and, and they did that, put huge pressure on the side and live off the mistakes of the opposition, if uh, if there are cracks, and there obviously were cracks, cracks in that uh, 2007 side, 
um, then they can be exploited. And, and we nearly lost that game. Very nearly. The standout memory most of us have is Dennis Leamy having to get his body between ball and ground in the last minute. There was a TMO then, an Argentinian TMO, I think, who, who made the decision that he'd held it up. That was how close it was to actually losing a World Cup game against Georgia. Yeah, it was incredible. And it was, um, uh, you know, it's, it was completely out of blue. And I suppose you always, it'll be the case, same um, case this week with the players will talk about, like the Jordans will be, you know, committed and they'll be physical and they'll be strong in the scrum. And, you know, it's maybe you don't underestimate them, but, you know, if, if you lay all the cards on the table, there's no way that a Georgia team should be getting anywhere close to Ireland. Um, and they shouldn't have been getting close to them, certainly in a World Cup. You know, whatever you think about, um, you know, catch a team on the on the hop at a, at a Autumn International um, and, you know, make things tight. But they're the sort of games that you should have been, you know, just, just you know, we should have really been destroying them. But, um, you know, after Namibia sort of had this quite a strange effect on the team. And then um, the, the Georgians, they, you know, it wasn't as if they were doing um, anything out of the ordinary. They were just, you know, tackling very hard, committing huge numbers of rooks. They weren't making many errors because they didn't pass the ball that much until actually until the last uh, few minutes when they, when they thought they had a chance of um, winning the game. And, uh, you know, we just made mistake after mistake after mistake and they, they stayed in the game right till the end. The, uh, was that the game that convinced you then that Ireland had a problem at that stage? If you couldn't beat a team comfortably as limited as Georgia, was that was that re, was that when the alarm bells started ringing? Well, I, I'm still not convinced we had a problem. You know, <laughs> it, was just, it was just denial. Uh, I, you know, very much the whole way through that tournament, I was thinking, well, you know, the next match, we're, we're bound to get it right. You know, we've done everything. We've, you know, we've done the analysis correctly. We, you know, and physically, we're in the best shape we could possibly be. Um, you know, we had form um, going into the tournament. Um, so I thought that, you know, I said, okay, maybe that wasn't great. You know, then you go, you know, Georgia, that clearly wasn't great. But, you know, we've got a huge opportunity to turn things around and against France. And then even, you know, even after the French game, you thought, well, there's still an opportunity with Argentina. And it was, it just never, uh, it never um, came together. And I think, you know, you're, you're right. Probably Namibia and and by the time you know, the Georgian game came around and we performed the way we did in that, there was probably no way of getting back on track because um, there, there must have been doubts. You know, I didn't feel that at the time, but I can only assume that you know there was there was a nerve, there was a nervousness that we were playing with, and there was a, a lack of um, um, ambition in our play as well. I think we, were, we, were, we were very, um, you know, we weren't throwing the ball around. We were you know very cagey on our, on our passing. There wasn't a fluidity to the game. And um, I think you know, you know, we we'll probably have the Georgians to thank for for a bit of that in the, in the later game. The a classic case, classic line in a case like this is that you, the bigger team underestimated their opponents. But I presume that Irish team, the amount of work that went into professionalism, I, I, I would imagine, and the intensity. I presume that that's not the case, or is it? Was there a sense that this should be easy? Yeah, I don't know. It's easy to say that you underestimated your team, yeah, a team, you know, but what does that really mean? You know, you don't know how good Georgia are going to be, you know, or, or how they're going to perform. But, like, I think, you know, as Ireland will do this week, they'll be preparing for themselves. And it was a World Cup, so there's no way that guys weren't, you know, fully committed and uh, had it without a huge desire to win. Um, you know, you, you don't know, and we don't have any history of, of games against Georgia, so we didn't, you know, know what we're going to be up against. But you have a fair idea, and you know that it's a World Cup, so teams are going to be, um, you know, going to be punching pretty hard. But 
there was I don't think there was any uh, complacency on how we prepared for them. I would say I would have said you know exactly the opposite of that, especially after the Namibia game. You know there were guys that were itching to to perform and and you know had been given another opportunity to play um, a game after playing so badly against Namibia. So you know I think it was another one of the factors that probably tightened us up. You know that we probably over overthought it. Did you meet the Georgia players afterwards? Did they, did they seem surprised by how close they'd come? Do you remember? Yeah, I do. I think they came into the change room afterwards. I remember, uh, you know, they weren't exactly, you know, you know, bodybuilders either. Do you know what I mean? It was, it was clear that there was, you know, there was very few professionals in the squad. And, you know, at that time, the Irish rugby team was just, everybody was ripped up, you know, uh, having spent, uh, you know, the best part of a, of a year preparing for that World Cup. And, and guys were in incredible condition. And, and these... Georgians came in like wandering in looking for a jersey change as if they just come off a bill inside or something, <laughs> and it, it just it was even more depressing. You know, you think why? You know, you do have a thought about you know what have I been doing with my life for the last you know, you know number of months and, and my chosen career? These guys have rocked them. It was all but like put a flag out and then rock into the dressing room and say, "How are you, lads?" Yeah. So and that sort of that just was. I can see we were we were looking around. It was sort of. I remember you know looking at Dennis Hickey and it was, it was it was funny, but it wasn't. You know, it was that kind of thing when something is serious, and you can still have a laugh at it. But you know, in the back that it's you know it's sort of tears of the clown thing because, um, you know, that was an, a real indicator that, you know, what what was what was going wrong, and we we probably weren't you know we weren't on the right track. Well, in terms of this weekend, and well, we haven't sp- spoken to you since the win over South Africa. Joe Schmidt obviously getting a huge amount of the praise for that, which is fair enough. Is there a danger, though, in the almost the cult of Joe Schmidt now that we're overlooking the players who have some sort of involvement in the whole process as well? Yeah, I, listen, um, the players, what you have to do is, no matter how good a game plan is and how precise it is, uh, you have to, you have, the players have to execute it. So that's it. Um, I think if you look at the game plan, it was, it was almost flawless. I have to say, I thought tactically it was it was phenomenal. But I think of all the teams in world rugby, I think you can do that against South Africa. Um, and Ireland have done it against South Africa. And I've been in teams where we've done it. We were, um, I said it before the game on, on, on um, Saturday that you can, you know, if you implement what you recognise on the, and prepare for during the week, if you implement that correctly and you don't get bullied by the South African team, they're the two things traditionally that can happen. You know, the South African team just bullies you off the pitch and physically they grind you down. Um, or you don't implement your game plan correctly. Uh, they're the two ways you lose against South Africa. But if you can compete with them physically, and now there's a number of factors that went into that for Ireland, uh, you know, the, the, the ball was damp, uh, the grass was damp as well, the footing, they didn't have quite the footing, so it's not quite as good a footwork in the contact area. It means you go down to the ground a little bit faster. It does take, probably um, um, tightens up everybody in terms of, you know, your, your speed, your top, uh, top end speed. And uh, also the handling wasn't particularly good. So there was a number of factors that went into it. Uh, and that weather also stopped their offload game as well. There was very, very little offloading by either team. Now, so that really added, you know, that really played into Ireland's ability to negate the things that South Africa are best at. Um, and you, they won't always be able to do that. Um, and I think if it had been a, if it was a dry track, I think it would be more difficult again. 
But what they did do was they implemented their game plan almost perfectly, um, both from a defensive point of view with their line speed, but more importantly, their chop tackle and allowing the, the next man in on the ball really quickly. And then an attack, it was phenomenal. Like the kicking display tactically, you know, I thought Sexton was so good. He was just, um, he, he, he just controlled every aspect of the game. I could see him talking to the players and it was all by numbers. Everybody knew what they were doing. And it looked like a team that was very well drilled uh, and it was it played like a team that were very well drilled and, uh, and you know the, you need those two sides of things going um, working if you want to win against the big teams and maybe those other outside factors as well So with one win under the belt already uh, this November what will the objectives be for, for this game for Ireland? Uh, well you know this game will be certainly it'll, it'll be won and it'll, uh, it'll probably be won well Um it will be um, uh, again. You know, Joe has. It'll be interesting to see what game plan he comes out with against them because he can't. You don't really know, know what you're going to get against Georgia. Yeah, they'll have some video, but it will be more about um, you know implementing um, our game plan and Ireland's game plan as opposed to really stopping theirs. You know, there's a good chance that we'll have a huge amount of possession. That's something that Ireland doesn't normally have against the you know the bigger teams so there's a there's a different way of having to play there and probably trying to have to force it and um, i think joe will be looking for guys who will implement what he wants to do what he's trying to do so although it's just because it's georgia um he'll be very demanding on you performing your role and um, the way he wants you to perform it and you know that's really important but it does leave me with kind of a little worry somewhere along the line that you know, we saw there was no offloading at the weekend. Now, that was probably a smart play because of the conditions that were there. But at some stage, you do need players to to be very to be able to make decisions. And I don't think, you know, I, or I think, unfortunately, sometimes when they're so regimented to a game plan, it can remove away a little bit of the creativity, uh, or not so much creativity, but decision-making ability. And against the bigger teams... Um, I think that could be difficult. You know, that, that, could, that could be a failure. Shane, just briefly, uh, you mentioned Johnny Sexton, how well he played. He's done it all year and he's been nominated for the IRB Player of the Year. Uh, having played with him, is, is that the kind of thing that he, he'll put a lot of store in? He didn't seem too enamoured by his Man of the Match award the other day, yeah, happy you, enough to take the medal. And you picked off. it, Shane. I mean, I were, were you <laughs> insulted by... Uh, <laughs> I shouldn't have bothered. He won't get one again. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, obviously, the, winning IRB Player of the Year would be pretty incredible, so maybe this is a stupid question, but uh, is it something he care about? Listen, I, I don't know. You, you got to imagine that everybody likes, um, you know, likes praise and likes being uh, rewarded for doing a job well. It certainly wouldn't be, you know, an objective, a key objective of his. But he is very team orientated, um, you know, more so than a lot of tens. Actually, he's really, really is a team player. Um, but you know, it's, it's listen. It's, it, it would be a fantastic thing to win. It'd be great for Ireland. I also, it's sort of sort of a badge of honour, not just for for Johnny, but for for Ireland as well. So I think from that um, from that aspect, it's it, it's it's nice um, if he could win it. And also, you know, I think he certainly, uh, if he, you know, if he's not the best ten in the world at the moment, I don't really know if he's much better than him. You know, I just think he's so good, and I thought he was particularly. Um, effective at the weekend. 
Yeah. And he's not getting a man of the match award off you for the next little while, though. It sounds <laughs> like this and Shane, brilliant stuff. Thanks a million. Thanks a million, lads. See you. In the final run in again. And here. Pretty grim scene painted of the Irish dressing room in 07 there, Murph, as a load of flabby Georgians <laughs> arrive in to congratulate have, the victorious Irish team. I have to say that uh, that provided <laughs> quite a bit of levity. Simon, you were at that World Cup. Uh, you were up close with the Georgians. Yeah. Did, did you notice the same thing as Shane? They had their tops on most of the time. Yeah, because a lot of the Irish players were hitting personal bests for you know sprints and weight lifts, and that was kind of the stuff that was coming out of the camp. We remember at the time the Irish team talking themselves up a little bit for the first and possibly last time, but... Yeah, the Georgians were just, uh, they were like brawlers, you know. They were, it was like a really slick boxer being uh, hauled into a horrible brawl <laughs> and just not being able to extricate By, uh, himself. Kimbo's life. Yeah, yeah. But that, the Irish team, because I was over in France for that, the Irish team reminded me of a guy whose car is stuck in the mud or in wet sand and he's revving his back wheel and then stops for a while and thinks about his options, revs his back wheel a little bit more thinks about his options, revs his back wheel <laughs> and keeps getting stuck deeper. Because that Irish team, the worse things got, the harder they worked, as in physically. Um, I remember them doing line-out drills in the, in the car park, like extra ones because the line-out was going badly as well. And, and uh, they were doing extra weight sessions. Paul O'Connell felt they needed to do maybe more fitness. It was just the, the worse it got, the more they were doing the Can thing that was making it Can you guys work a little harder? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, pump a few more weights. Well, listen, we've already put out our Scotland Ireland preview. Ken, what was in there? That's, yeah, they have asked for that, really. Well, you can laugh. I'm the World Cup. I'm a little bit of an idealist, but having said that, I want to be like me. But you don't know what you're talking about. What yeah. did you know? I'd like to stay alive for six oh, and a half years. I'd say it to your face, not say it to you now. I will down to Anfield and we'll see them, won't we? What you doing down here, you sure you man. Ken. Yeah, it's Scotland and Ireland down all the way. We're going to talk to Emmett Malone about the latest um, uh, Roy Keane uh, story and also how are they going to reconstruct their midfield in the absence of uh, McCarthy and Whelan. We're going to talk also to Ray Houghton about his memories of growing up in Castle Milk, which is the suburb of Glasgow uh, that gave us both uh, McCarthy and McGeady and a lot of other footballers besides. And there's also going to be some talk in there on about FIFA's latest um, <laughs> the staggering cock-up. You could have finished at FIFA's latest and I think people would have got the idea already but that's all out there for you. Have a listen to that. As soon as you finish this programme, make sure to listen to the rest of this then listen to that immediately no matter what else you're, you're doing with your day. Uh, now, take Roman Abramovich, George Steinbrenner and Silvio Berlusconi. Mix their egos in together and you come up with somebody like Jerry Jones, the owner and general manager of the Dallas Cowboys. Jones is the subject of a brilliant new article on ESPN.com by Don Van Nata, who joins us now. Don, great to have you on the show, first of all. Thanks very much for talking to us. 
Thank you. Great to be with you guys. Can you explain for an Irish audience, um, who is Jerry Jones? Why did you want to spend a lot of time with this person to write, uh, write this kind of piece on him? Well, Jerry Jones is easily the most famous and uh, also maybe the most infamous of all of the sports owners in the United States. Uh, he has been the owner of the Dallas Cowboys now for a quarter of a century, and he's just this incredible American success story. You know, the son of a grocer in North Little Rock, Arkansas, who dreamed when he was in college as a young man of someday owning an NFL franchise, had a chance to buy the AFL San Diego Chargers back in the 60s and was talked out of it by his father. Uh, it would have made him a quick $6 million had he done it because the AFL merged with the NFL. And, and then finally in 1989 had a chance to buy the Dallas Cowboys for a record $151 million and did so. And, uh, and now he's this multi-billionaire dreaming about winning another Super Bowl uh, on his own without the help of a coach who helped him win uh, the, the first three or the first, certainly arguably the first two because he was the coach, but even the third, and that's a man named Jimmy Johnson. So he's just fascinating on every level. And I was lucky enough to spend uh, several months with him this summer and really get to know him for uh, our audience here in the United States. He, uh, you mentioned Jimmy Johnson there, who I understand was an old college pal of his. They won those Super Bowls together. And then Jerry Jones sacked him inexplicably, really, was it? Yeah, they, they really, uh, it, it, it is sort of inexplicable even 20 years later. Uh, they had a falling out despite winning two straight Super Bowls. So, uh, Jimmy Johnson is the only coach arguably ever in the history of the NFL who will be sacked after winning a second consecutive Super Bowl because he got crossways with Jerry Jones. It was really just a fight over how much glory Jerry Jones deserved as a football man, as the general manager, and how much glory Jimmy Johnson deserved as the head coach. Johnson felt he deserved most, if not all of it. Jones felt he deserved some, and they were at each other's throats for months in Dallas and finally decided to part ways in the early part of 1994. It's been 20 years now, and anybody who reads my story will see that it still eats at Jerry Jones, uh, that decision to sack Jimmy Johnson, and, and now he wants to, Jerry Jones wants to do it on his own. He wants to win a Super Bowl without Jimmy Johnson. It's been 20 years he's been unable to do it. Uh, but he wants to get that monkey off his back and, and do it without uh, his, his old uh, college roommate. Yeah, and a guy who would uh, would sack a coach because he's getting too much of the credit, I think you've already established the ego levels we're talking about here that Jerry Jones have, but you did say that he's an, ego, an egotistical person like that can be far more fascinating maybe than a lot of the rest of us. How did you find his personality and spending time? Were you charmed by the man? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I really was, uh, from, from the word go. Uh, I met him in a bar. Uh, you know, his, uh, his PR man in Dallas uh, told me that he didn't think Jerry Jones would be interested in doing this kind of in-depth profile with me. So I went to an owner's meeting, an NFL owner's meeting in the spring in Atlanta at the Rich Carlton. And after the meeting, I found Jerry Jones sitting in the bar alone at a table uh, with, with, with a big tumbler of uh, whiskey in front of him. And I introduced myself, and Jones and I spent three and a half hours together that night uh, drinking Johnny Walker Blue together and really hit it off. And he's extremely charming. Every question you ask him, he answers without a filter. So in many ways, he's a journalist's dream. And we spent a lot of time together this summer. I was a guest of his in his suite uh, for a, a country music uh, concert uh, by George Strait at AT&T Stadium. I flew on his uh, 
G5 from Dallas to Fayetteville for an event for his old college coach uh, from Arkansas. Uh, we uh, spent time together at uh, training camp out in California at Oxnard, and, uh, and I went to a uh, a, a game uh, during preseason, and, and again spent some time with him in his suite. We talked on the phone all the time, and he's incredibly charming and likable and fun uh, to be around. And uh, you know, he's a larger-than-life figure. He reminded me in many ways, guys, of Bill Clinton, uh, who I got to know covered uh, the Clinton administration for the New York Times back in the late '90s and played a round of golf with Clinton for a book I wrote. Uh, they're both from Arkansas. They're both larger-than-life figures, and uh, they both often speak with no filter, which is great for a journalist. Yeah, you also uh, write, Don, uh, what person in any profession could manage to keep a job if he hadn't succeeded in, in nearly 20 years? I suppose the answer to that question is a guy who gave himself the job having bought the company. Uh, which is effectively what uh, what Jerry Jones has done. But the the key part about the entire article that you've written is this idea that it's nearly 20 years now they've won one playoff game since their last Super Bowl success. Uh, and for all the talk that they're you know, America's team, that they're the biggest franchise in world sports, they're actually a mediocre team. And the mediocrity really is, 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 what's, is what's eating them up inside. Absolutely. Uh, as I call them in the story, the Dallas Cowboys are masters of mediocrity. Uh, it's, it's remarkable in the last 17 years going into this season, the team had an exact 500 record, 136 wins and 136 losses. And as you say, only one playoff victory. And it really eats at Jones. Uh, he said to me that you would not believe the size of the check that he would write if it could guarantee the Dallas Cowboys winning that Super Bowl without the help of Jimmy Johnson. And, and that's what's really the most fascinating thing about Jones. He's a guy that's living his dream, uh, worth multiple billions of dollars, built this incredible showplace stadium, AT&T Stadium, that, that's called Jerry World. It's, it's literally named after him. Uh, and yet he's not satisfied. He, he, he still has something to prove, and that is he is a smart football man. And as general manager, this job, as you say, he gave to himself 25 years ago when he bought the team, that he, he truly deserves to have that title and have that job, and, uh, and he wants it more than anything else in the world. And so that, that was the part of Jerry Jones's personality and his character that I found uh, most fascinating. A, a guy who has it all, except the, the one thing he wants the most is, the only thing in the world he can't buy, and that's really interesting. The sort of time that you were given to write this down and the access that you get, I guess it's every journalist's dream in a lot of ways, and you have to work your way up the profession to get to the point to be given the, the trust to do that. But in a sporting context, in a sports media context, is it only really the big hitters now like ESPN who are really able to uh, have the luxury of putting a guy like you working on a story like this? Absolutely, that's that's so true, and and, I, and I've said it a number of times since the story came out. There there are very few media organizations left in the world that have the resources uh, and and the patience to allow a writer to go off for three months uh, and do what I did for for a single story. Now it was a television story. We we put it on the television network. We did a lengthy uh, TV piece, but. But the magazine and dot-com story I did uh, was primarily what this was about. And I made eight trips uh, to places like Texas and Arkansas, Oklahoma, California, 
uh, to interview people uh, for this story. And it's an incredible privilege uh, that, I've, that I have as a writer to be able to uh, have a place that values that kind of work and has the resources uh, to pay for it. And, uh, and so I pinch myself every day. It, it, it was great fun. Uh, and, and, you know, uh, to, to do a story like that and, and, uh, and to have the network behind it in the way that it was. The Cowboys this season were 6-1 and one at one stage. It won six games and lost one. So maybe it looked like Jerry Jones's dream was going to be lived through again this year, but they've, the wheels have fallen off a little bit. Have they got any chance of fulfilling his, his dream of winning another Super Bowl this season? They do have a chance. Uh, I think they're listed in Vegas now at 18-1 to 1 to win the Super Bowl, so they're, they're certainly not a favorite, but uh, they do have a chance. And the reason that they do, and this is another interesting aspect of Jerry Jones as a football man, is they have a terrific offensive line uh, that they have built through the drafts, that Jones has built through the drafts over the last several years. And they really have an offensive line that's the envy of uh, many teams in the NFL. And if they, if they do go deep, into the playoffs and even have a chance to make the Super Bowl, it will be on the backs of those men on that offensive line that protect Tony Romo and that have allowed DeMarco Burry, the running back, to have a record-setting year so far. I mean, he may smash all the records uh, for a uh, single-season rushing record. He's on pace to do that. And so uh, Jones gets a lot of credit for that. Of course, he wanted to draft Johnny Manziel, as I point out in the story, uh, uh, this this uh, this past year, it had to be talked out of it by his son, uh, who's the vice president for player personnel and others. He really wanted Manziel and was still angry about it all through the summer. But it turned out the offensive lineman that they drafted, this man Zach Martin, has been terrific and has really been a key to their success this season. Yeah, you had an interesting meeting uh, in the piece with Tony Romo. Uh, what is the situation there? You've outlined it a little bit, but uh, why is it that they haven't got a guy, haven't managed to have a guy in there who who can do it really in the biggest situations? Well, Romo is such a fascinating uh, piece of the Jones story because Jerry Jones has really gone all in on Tony Romo, and uh, you know he's had. Uh, two back surgeries in the last uh, 18 months or so and, and, and continue to have back troubles just in the last couple of weeks and was inserted back into a game on Monday night, which caused a, a lot of uh, controversy here because Jones went down on the field and spoke with uh, the Cowboys head coach, Jason Garrett. It appeared as if Jones was telling Garrett to put Romo back in the game after he'd been knocked out with a back injury. But Jones believes in Romo so much uh, you know, he's 34 now, Romo. He's not getting any younger. He's uh, signed to a lucrative long-term contract. And so uh, those hopes that Jones has to finally win a Super Bowl in, in many ways rise and fall on Romo's shoulders. And, uh, and, and in the clutch in past years, he's not proven to be a clutch player. He's thrown key interceptions down the stretch in the fourth quarter uh, and, and has really frustrated Jones. And yet despite all that, he's all in and hanging in there on, uh, on Tony Romo. All right, right. I can't decide if I want the Cowboys to win this year after this chat or not, Don. But listen, we'll tweet a link on to the article and people can judge Jerry Jones and the team for themselves. It's been great to talk to you in the program. Really appreciate it. Thank you, guys. I appreciate your time. Mm. You remember my grandmother, no disrespect, when I used to get in trouble, she looked at me and said, hmm. And I knew a butt whooping was coming at the <laughs> I'm an alien. Think about it. Roy Jones is born. James, James, James Tony is born. I ran Barkley is born. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. 
Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. I should have been on this game 15, maybe 20 years ago, man. And then that's why I said, I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Tell me why I'm not. Explain why I'm here. I'm an alien. But I'm telling you right now, I'm an alien. Did Google even get your own information? I'm an alien. You should be gone. I'm an alien. Google it. I'm an alien. Mm. I'm an alien. I'm an alien. Yeah, it was interesting that just as we were speaking to Don, I was... I was going to ask him about that stadium anyway. He brought it up unprompted. That ridiculous... It's not just a stadium. I mean, this is this is a super stadium, this mm. place, this Dallas Cowboys place. Uh, yep. Yeah, it's a, weird, it's a weird thing because uh, oftentimes you see these... Uh, I've, you know, for whatever reason, sports stadiums, I'm always really curious to see... Like I, I, I value them as architecture quite apart from uh, just, you know, places where sport happens. So you see all these, these ridiculous plans, you know, like for the... The new camp is going to get totally redone or something. And I'm like flicking through like 20 artists renderings right. of the new new camp or whatever. Um, and I remember seeing the design for the new Cowboy Stadium and looking at the, a little like 3D rendering of it and all the rest. And I was like, well, this all looks very, very fancy, you know, but, you know, obviously it's not going to be half as <laughs> ridiculous. As, and it turns out it's 10 times more opulent and ridiculous uh, than even the 3D rendering uh, that uh, I saw about seven or eight years ago, because it is ridiculous. I mean, there's a, the the two biggest jumbotrons in the world. Like it's basically 80 yards of a TV of a TV TV screen uh, on both sides of the stadium. So it's you're basically watching it on TV even when you're in the stadium. Mm. It's the capacity of 92,000 people. And it's, it's ridiculous, but it's the most beautiful stadium in the world. You I mean, thought it was going to be like that burger you see in a chipper up on the screen. Exactly. It's really tasty and really nice solid. Then it gets you and it's just this sloppy thing with the mayonnaise slopping over the top of it. And you're just like, I, mean, I can't even what, hold this. Yeah, that's, but I mean, that's what life has taught us. <laughs> you know, you, you're sold one thing with the expectation that what's on the box is not what's going to be inside the box. Our football podcast is already out today. Do have a listen to that. Ray Houghton was in particularly good form. Gave us a huge amount of background in his own upbringing in Castle Milk. This area of Glasgow that's produced uh, the McCarthy and, and uh, McGeady and a load of other great players, including Ray Houghton himself. Thankfully, a lot of them have declared for Ireland over the years, which is why we want to talk to him about that. And while we're being all pa- patriotic today, Ken, we should mention the Stephanie Roach goal uh, which is on the this is the Irish footballer Stephanie Roach, of course, which is uh, on the FIFA shortlist for Goal of the Year. People need to get voting on this. Yeah, it's amazing. Um, you know, there's goals there by Tim Cahill, Roman van Persie from the World Cup. Uh, goals by Zlatan, uh, Diego Costa, James Rodriguez's goal from the World Cup as well, and then the goal by Stephanie Roach uh, for Piment against Wexford Youths, uh, which is up there with all of those. And um, if history teaches us anything on it's that Irish people are good at internet <laughs> polls uh, so I recommend uh, everybody gets onto that FIFA website um, it's fifa.com slash ballon door ballon hyphen door slash puskas hyphen award you'll find it you'll find it just FIFA puskas award you'll find it and you can vote and it's one click thing and uh, maybe uh, Stephanie Roach can um, Beat Zlatan and Hammers and those guys in the Haveny Place. Sounds good. Hopefully we'll beat Scotland into the Haveny Place tomorrow night, Ken. Well, thank you, First Murphy, right beside me. Thank you, Owen. And thank you, Ken, over in Glasgow. Thanks. Thank you to uh, Kieran and thank you, Owen. Thanks, Ken. Thanks for listening. Do check out the uh, website anytime you want, the secondcaptains.com, and enjoy the game tomorrow night. We'll chat to you soon.
Oh, is that? That's the second time it's gone off. They never go home. They never go home. They never go home. Those, 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 